You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. I hated my Catholic high school. Wanted to transfer somewhere else, anywhere else. I was miserable. I was so sick of getting beaten up by bullies. I was really tired of flunking Latin. And I didn't believe in God anymore. But I was a quarter of my way through my sophomore year. And my parents said, no, I would have to finish that year at Quigley Preparatory Seminary North. And then we could talk about the possibility that I might be able to transfer to a different school. So I did what any painfully shy, musical theater-obsessed, introverted mama's boy of a closeted gay kid would do. I bombed my school. I got my hands on two M80s, probably got them from my older brother Eddie, who generally knew how to get his hands on things kids weren't supposed to get their hands on. M80s are commonly believed to be a quarter of a stick of dynamite. That belief is so common, I believed it until I googled M80s this morning. Turns out they're nowhere near a quarter stick of dynamite. But they were originally developed by the U.S. military in the early 20th century to simulate exploding artillery shells during training exercises. The more you know. Anyway, one day during school, when everyone else was in class and the halls were empty, I lit two M80s, threw them in my locker, closed the door, and walked out of the building. You know those action movies where they show the hero walking away from the exploding building or car, airplane, or planet, or whatever in slow motion? It was like that. If I'd had a smartphone then, I would have filmed it and I'd be able to prove it. But I didn't have a smartphone then because nobody did. So you're going to have to take my word for it. I was walking out the door when I heard the explosion and I didn't flinch or turn around or look back. And while two M80s do not, as it turns out, add up to a half a stick of dynamite, the two of them together did manage to blow the motherfucking door off my fucking locker. I was expelled that day. So it worked. The M80s, they worked. And my plan, it worked. I also didn't kill anyone, and thank God for that. And this was decades ago, so I didn't get arrested and sent to prison. Man, imagine being sent directly from an all-boys Catholic high school full of violent bullies and predatory priests to a prison where I'd have to worry about violence and sexual assault. Anyway, the memory of that day, the day I did what may have been the single coolest thing I've ever done, coolest in the action movie sense, and the single stupidest thing I've ever done, stupid in the danger it posed to others sense, I mean, the door to my locker flew across the hall and slammed into a wall. If someone had been walking by at that moment, I hate to think what might have happened. But anyway, the memory of that day, the day I got myself expelled from my Christian high school that I hated from my Catholic seminary high school where kids who were thinking about becoming priests, boys, were sent. All those memories came flooding back as I read the news about Kimberly Alford. Kimberly is a 15-year-old student at Whitefield Academy a K-12 private Christian school in Louisville, Kentucky. Or she was a student at Whitefield until some eagle-eyed administrator spotted a photo of Kimberly on Facebook taken at her birthday party. In the photo, Kimberly is wearing a sweater with a rainbow on it and blowing out the candles on a very colorful cake. From the letter that Kimberly's parents got from Bruce Jacobson, the head of school, the WA administration has been made aware of a recent picture posted on social media which demonstrates a posture of morality and cultural acceptance contrary to that of Whitefield Academy's beliefs. Copy of the photo was enclosed, Kimberly in her rainbow sweater sitting in front of her rainbow-ish cake. 
and Kimberly's enrollment, the letter went on, at Whitefield was terminated effective immediately. All parents who enroll their children in our private school know up front that we ask the students to adhere to a lifestyle informed by our Christian beliefs. The letter continued. Now, for the record, neither the rainbow on Kimberly's sweater nor the kind of stripy colors on her cake resemble the gay pride rainbow flag. And Kimberly's mom was literally able to produce receipts. She asked the bakery to make a colorful cake, the kind of cake a teenage girl might want to celebrate her birthday, not a rainbow pride cake. You know, the kind of cake a twink might order to celebrate his first spit roasting. But rainbows, rainbows, now so tarnished, so covered in queer cooties that being seen in one or near one can get you expelled from Whitefield Academy. So the sun showers in the spring, you Whitefield kids who don't want to get expelled might want to hide in your parents' basements until the rainbow shit is over. And a quick point of order on some Bible study, because I know that's what everybody listens to this show for. The rainbow, before Judy Garland and the cocksuckers got our grubby hands all over it, was a symbol of God's new covenant with humankind after the flood. It comes at the end of the Noah's Ark storyline, basically, after God got really mad and decided to drown every living thing on the planet, every man, woman, and child, every fetus in their mother's womb, every living thing but Noah and his family, and as many breeding pairs as they could fit on the ark, after God was done murdering everyone, he sent a rainbow as a sign that he would not do that again. And God said, this, he means the rainbow, is a sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. Whenever a rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember, this is God talking about himself to himself, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind and never again send the waters to become a flood to destroy all life. So basically, those rainbows in the sky aren't there to remind us or Noah and his family about this new covenant, but they're there to remind God not to kill everybody. You know, freshman year when I entered quickly, I wanted to be a priest, and I kind of believed. By sophomore year, I didn't want to be a priest, and I didn't believe because I read the Bible. Anyway, after God is done making this pretty speech in which he admits to being a kind of absent-minded mass murderer who needs to be reminded now and again not to do mass murder— Noah's kids get busy incesting the shit out of each other to repopulate the planet. It's really charming. This story, and I mean now the one about Kimberly Alford and Whitefield Academy, it does have a happy ending. Kimberly's going to a public school now where she gets to learn about evolution and might get to see a woman from Planned Parenthood roll a condom onto a banana and where school administrators presumably won't be combing through her Facebook posts for evidence of thought crimes. But the most important lesson here, or the real takeaway for me, is how lucky the kids are at Whitefield Academy who want to get themselves expelled. It's pretty easy. I had to get my hands on simulated artillery shells and blow up my locker and risk jail time to get my ass expelled from Wiggly. You kids at Whitefield? You just have to be photographed near a cake of many colors. Or walk outside during a sun shower and take a selfie. I wish Quigley had been as easy to escape from as Whitefield Academy. All right, coming up today on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and on the magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com, twice as much show, guests and no ads, Michal David joins us to discuss hypnotism, the kink. All that coming up on today's show. Hi, Dan. 
31 year old bisexual woman. One year ago, I left a seven year long relationship that was very toxic and abusive. And I'm now happy to be single and focusing on myself. Um, but I did get into a sort of uncomfortable situation now. About two months ago, I had sex with a friend of mine, kind of a drug filled night. And it was a friend I've known for years, but never envisioned any kind of sexual or romantic relationship with them. And I said, you know, this was a mistake. Let's just pretend that never happened and go back to being friends. But then as we were continuing to just hang out as friends, he told me that he was actually attracted to me and had feelings for me and was a little persistent in wanting to keep exploring a sexual relationship. I had a lot of qualms right up front about it. I told him, you know, right away, it concerned me because if if it ends or things don't go well, sometimes when you have sex with a friend, that can end up hurting the friendship. And his friendship was very important to me, and I didn't want to lose that. Also, he and I, in conjunction with two other friends of ours, are about to be launching a business together. So, yeah, you know, don't fuck where you eat. Uh, seems like a bad idea. And uh, I told him all my concerns. Also, that because of this relationship that I left recently, you know, I'm really just not in a place where I can open myself up to anything serious emotionally. I can't really give a lot right now. I can't make any promises or any commitments. I don't want to be in a relationship right now. And despite all these concerns, he was very persistent. And he said he wasn't going to ask too much of me or ask for any commitment, but that he really liked me and really wanted to explore this. And he promised that if the sex ended, he promised it would not ruin or change our friendship. We would just go back to being friends the way it was before. So after all that, I kind of gave in a little. Maybe, I guess at the time, I was feeling a little lonely, and and he was there. <laughs> so anyway, I decided to give it a shot. And, you know, I really do enjoy spending time with him. I enjoy his company. We laugh together. We talk about everything together. I feel comfortable around him. It's been about two months now. The main problem is the sex. It's the worst sex I've ever had. It's just uh, for several reasons. Um, one, he kind of has a disappointingly small dick. Also, he does not seem to have the skills with his tongue and fingers and everything. I've tried so hard to teach him and give him very explicit directions. It doesn't seem to be sinking in. But the more important problem, I think, is that I'm just not physically attracted to him. I thought at first maybe, you know, I'll give it a chance. Sometimes attraction can grow or it takes time to find rhythms with a new person sexually, but it's it's just not happening. The attraction is not growing. I'm not feeling it to the point where I'm starting to feel kind of annoyed almost. He's very become very clingy, very needy. So... I, you know, I gave it a shot. It's not working. So I finally did what I knew I had to do, which is to end it. I told him, look, I really love your company. I value your friendship and your companionship. I care about you, but I don't feel the attraction the same way that you are. And I just would like to go back to being friends and, and not keep having sex. And he responded basically saying, you know, it's that's okay if you're not attracted to me. If you don't have those kind of feelings for me, you can't force that. I can't change that. And that's okay. However, he said now that he is, has become so in love with me and so attracted to me that now to continue to spend time together as friends without having sex, he said, would just be torture to him and it would be just too painful. And so therefore he 
does not want to see me, doesn't want to be around me, doesn't want to continue talking or texting outside of the context of our like group business meetings with our other friends. Yeah, I guess I felt really hurt by all of that. I felt, you know, a little betrayed maybe and a little abandoned by my friend. I felt like he made me this promise that he is either going back on or maybe I felt a little manipulated. Did he just say that at the time because he knew it was the thing he had to say to get to have sex at the time? So yeah, I guess my question is, can I salvage this friendship now or do I, do I need to respect his feelings? Or maybe he did fall hard and he needs a little time and space to detach. On the other hand, I felt a little like he suddenly abandoned me and I felt like I, I needed him as my friend now. Then also, how do we move forward now? We have to continue navigating this like business partnership with our, with our other group of people in business meetings. And do I have a right to expect him to keep his promise that he was going to stay my friend and go back to the way it was before? Am I being selfish or unreasonable to expect that? Or do I need to let it go, give it some space? Maybe just let it have some time. Maybe I'm being impatient. Let it have some time and, and things can go back to normal after a little space. Maybe he lied. That is always a possibility. People lie to people to get into their pants. People tell people what they think they want to hear or must hear to get what they want from them. And he wanted to have a chance with you. He didn't just want to have sex with you. He wanted a shot. He wanted a chance at a committed, loving, sexual relationship. And he promised you because you were wary, you just got out of a seven-year toxic, abusive relationship and you didn't think that this was right and you valued his friendship and you didn't want to risk that. And so he promised you that if it went south, if you decided you didn't want to be with him, that he would pivot back to friendship, that he would do that. He could still do that, but right now he can't, and you have to respect that. You can't salvage your friendship with him on your terms or on your timetable against his will. What he's telling you right now is that it's too painful hanging out with you. It's too painful talking with you. That's often the case when people get dumped, even after two months, when people get dumped, it's painful to be with or hang out with the person who dumped you, whether you began to date them the first moment you met them, if it was a hookup online and then it just took off or whether they were friends and you found yourself in bed after years and years and years. It's hard to be around the person who dumped you, but it's not hard forever. You're just going to have to be patient and give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he lied or maybe this was a, a marker that he hoped that he could live up to this and expected that he could, but now because his feelings got all wrapped up in it, he can't right now. The world is full of people who are friends with their exes. The world is not full of people who are friends with their exes immediately after they dumped their boyfriend or girlfriend and made that person into an ex. Give him some time, give him some space, don't take responsibility for it. You didn't do anything wrong here. You can also remind him of the promise that he made you and say that you hope that eventually you can get there and that he can make good on that promise because you do value his friendship and you would like to someday have him in your life again as a friend. That you are still in his life as a business partner, you're still working on this project together, means you're going to have some interactions that will help you power through the awkwardness and that will help you get there in time. You weren't a bad person for giving him a shot. I would, if I were you, give him the benefit of the doubt about the promise and then give him time and give him space. You really have no choice but to give him time and give him space. If he says, if anyone says, I can't hang out with you right now, I can't text with you right now, it's too painful for me. You can't say, but you promised and force them to hang out with you or force them to text you or force them 
to be your friend. If you guys are going to be friends again, that will come in time. If you're never going to be friends again, well, I guess you'll find that out when you're dead because there's always going to be a chance that even if it takes years, you could reestablish this friendship. Stranger things have happened. And a quick addendum, you can have great sex with people who have small penises. There are people out there who have small penises who know how to work that penis. They know how to like grind on someone to get them off. A woman's pleasure or ability to climax during intercourse is often about external stimulation, external clitoral stimulation, not about getting a dick up inside her as far as a guy can possibly go. And there are toys, there are tongues, there are fingers, there are forearms, there are lots of things a guy can bring to the table or bring to the bed or bring to the dungeon or bring to the wherever and still be great sex, even with a smaller dick. Hey, Dan, my sex drive right now is so low. Like, I can't even get a heart on it anymore. I can't even, like, watch porn. I can't do anything. I think it's the government. Everything is, like, making me so turned off about everyone. And no, I should not let that control me. But at the same time, like, I'm a gay dude. Uh, living in the Northwest, and I'm I'm just not attracted to anyone, like anyone that messages me on like uh, apps or anything like that. And it's probably not good. Maybe I'm an asshole. I don't fucking know. I just want to get back to a normal sex drive. Like I don't I don't have a sex drive. I quit smoking weed like probably over a year ago. Um, I drink beer. I uh, drink a lot of beer. And then on top of that, like, I just, I don't know. I just don't get along with anyone, man. Like, I, everyone that I meet, like, I, I try so hard to, like, find something in, in them that, like, we get along or on, on the same status. But, like, I just don't get along with anyone. And uh, is that just a a thing like is that a big city thing is that a small town thing i mean i just i don't know what to do 37 years old i'd love to date somebody i'd love to get married i'd love to adopt kids but like i can't even every single time that i put that out there on like any of these like grinder or scruff or um what's the other one adam for adam like i know they're all hookup sites but nobody's looking seriously right now and it's freaking me out and it seems like everybody's like super sexually active and not fucking putting a condom on their dick and i don't know what there might be guys on Grinder and Scruff who want to marry. I know there are actually definitely I can say for sure. There are guys on Grinder and Scruff and Adam for Adam and every other hookup app who would like someday to be married, like someday to have kids. But you leading with marriage and kids on these hookup apps is going to provoke even from guys who want what you want ultimately a kind of this is a wendy's sir reaction you're asking for looking right now in this place for a thing that isn't what's on offer in this place and that demonstrates kind of bad judgment that's one of my hobby horses around here i think we need to demonstrate 
good judgment and what you look for on hookup apps are hookups and you can make it clear that you're open to more than just a hookup and that will send a lot of guys who are only interested in hookups running. You don't want to waste your time on those guys and attract the attention of guys who like you are interested in hooking up. That's why they're on a hookup app but interested or open to potentially something more serious if they hook up with somebody and really click. All that said, I don't get along with anyone. Is that a thing? Yeah, it's a thing. It's a problematic thing and it's your thing that you need to take responsibility for. You need to get your ass into therapy. If you don't get along with anyone, if you're just angry and bitter and judgmental, you're not going to attract positive attention. You're not going to meet people who want to spend time with you or want to have a relationship with you because you don't like them. You don't like anyone. I get it. The state of the world right now, shit is bad. You have to be able to compartmentalize. You have to be able to be upset and do what you can to make the world a better place around the edges and donate and volunteer where you can and be a part of the solution. You also need to be able to shift gears and enjoy your life and the time you have with people that you enjoy spending time with. And right now there are no people on earth that you believe you could enjoy spending time with. You could go see cats with. I went and saw cats. Oh my God. It's amazing. Go see cats. Maybe it'll help snap you out of it. But what you really need to see is a therapist or a counselor. You really need to talk this out with someone, not someone on Grindr, not someone on Scruff or Adam for Adam or Recon or anywhere else. You need to talk with somebody who's a professional about the dark place you're in, about the corner that you've found yourself stuck in emotionally, maybe that you've painted yourself into Emotionally, you need to find your way out of that corner and no one you meet on Grindr or Scruff or Adam or, Adam or anywhere else is going to be able to lead you out of that corner. I'm trying to be kind and I, and I ache for you. I do. I do. Shit is bad and it is getting to a lot of us, but you are not in good working order right now. You are not going to attract the attentions of someone who is themselves in good working order. You might attract attention from someone who is reeling and damaged in the same way you are reeling and damaged, but you're not going to have a healthy relationship with that person. It won't be possible. We don't have to be perfect. We're allowed to have our issues. We're allowed to be depressed occasionally. We're allowed to be depressed a lot. We're allowed to feel our feelings, but we have to be functional to have a partner, to attract a partner, to attract a spouse, to raise kids. You have to be functional. And if everywhere you look, you see people that you hate or make you angry or that you can't be bothered with or that you resent for not being receptive to your offer of marriage and children on a hookup app, you are the problem. You are the common denominator in all those negative interactions and all that disappointment. You need to work on you. Get yourself to a therapist. Talk it out. You say you gave up pot and started drinking more. My advice would be to flip that. No one I know who gives up pot and drinks more winds up happier than the people who give up booze and pot in moderation, if not more. But individual results may vary. Maybe you need to give up the booze and the pot too. Unpack that with your therapist. Hey, Dan. I am a hetero female in the Midwest. I've been married for about five years. 
um, and I'm actually pregnant right now. So very happy with my husband. I did have a question or concern about making out. I know it seems silly at this point, but he has really thick spit and I've kind of gotten on his case being like, you're not hydrated enough. It's slimy. Um, and, you know, sometimes he's like, I drink a lot of water. I don't know what you're talking about. And sometimes I just don't necessarily believe that. But regardless, when we make out, it's just kind of a lot for me. And so we've kind of more or less stopped. Sex is good. I do miss making out, but also it's not a huge thing that I am upset about that doesn't, isn't part of our life anymore. So I guess my question for you is like, is there a way to communicate this better to him that I do kind of miss this, but it's also not a huge deal breaker, but also I'm not a hundred percent okay with his oral health. I don't know. Uh, do you have any recommendations? I would love to hear your response. You know how they warn people not to Google minor medical conditions because you'll have a panic attack based on what you read? I Googled thick and slimy saliva and instantly got, oh my God, cancer. It could be cancer, salivary gland cancer. So maybe your husband needs to go to the doctor and have his salivary glands checked out. But it is far likelier, according to the Mayo Clinic, that your husband is not getting enough fluids. Your diagnosis. You've asked him to drink more. Don't ask. Put a glass of water in front of him. This is sometimes what spouses do for each other. Spouses complaining about some aches, some pains, some medical thing, and you get tired of telling them to make an appointment to see the doctor, and you make the appointment for them to see the doctor yourself to make sure it gets done. It's one of the reasons that people in marriages, married people, tend to live longer. They're likelier to get medical care, not of their own volition, but because their spouse forces them to. You can force your spouse, after he gets checked out to see if he's got salivary gland cancer, you can force your spouse to drink more water. Not by asking him to, but by setting a glass of water in front of him and folding your arms across your chest and insisting. And there's a reward for him, and you should emphasize that as well. The more water he drinks, the more hydrated he is, the less thick and slimy his saliva is, the more of it you are going to drink yourself. Hey, Dan. Big fan. I listen to your show the second it comes out every week. So I appreciate your input. Just want to know what you think about my situation. Uh, my current relationship started and evolved under some strange circumstances. We've had amazing times. We have amazing chemistry, but we've had a rough go the last little while. And I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on it. We met through one of the local polyamory groups, and it began as just a friends with benefits situation. She was married and in an open relationship, and I was divorced and just dating a lot of people. The first time we had sex was hands down the best sex either of us has ever had in our lives. Two years later, we still have incredible sex regularly, which may be a part of why we put up with so much crap from each other. She ended up deciding to divorce her husband after years together being religious, losing their religion, realizing that was the main reason they got together, then trying the open relationship thing is basically a latch-ditch effort. They decided to call it quits. They are still in the process of divorce and will probably get papers early this coming year. We fell in love and decided to be monogamous with each other. We've been together over two years now, one year while she was married and one while separated going through the divorce process. But I've basically been a secret to the majority of people in her life as she's not yet divorced. She has an exhibitionism kink, which was fueled in their marriage. Lots of hot wiping type stuff going on. She's absolutely beautiful and enjoys the intention that she gets from it. And that's fine. I can deal with that. I feel okay about it. And we've 
find found ways to involve me and ways to compromise. So we figured out a way to make that work together. Um, her and her ex also have a post-religion sex positivity group where once a month, everyone posts sexy pictures of themselves and they discuss their sex lives post-religion. Her ex and her started the group and are admins, and he has vetoed my request to join the group. And this kind of just makes me uncomfortable. This kink, this group, being a secret to everyone in her life and past online attention-seeking behaviors have all made me really insecure about this relationship. I know that she loves me, and we've even talked about marriage, but these are not normal relationship circumstances, and I get nervous talking about the future when we can't even be public with our present. We keep coming back and fighting about this stupid group. We've worked through a lot of bad social media behaviors that are disrespectful on both of our ends. But this group is just hard for me to get past. She's left it a couple times and always goes back to it whenever we fought about anything. We're currently taking a break and I'm miserable. I don't want to lose this amazing connection over some dumb Facebook group. She doesn't want to leave the group as she created it and obviously gets a lot out of it. And I try to ignore it, ignore it, but it slowly just eats away at me until it gets mentioned and then I end up getting upset about it. Am I being too controlling? Is it wrong of me to ask that my partner and possibly future wife not be in a sex group with her ex that I'm not allowed to be in, see, or even talk about? Anyway, I'd love to hear what you think, Dan. I'm sure I'm probably being too controlling over this dumb group, but it really just eats away at me. There's a lot going on here. Religious couple, divorce, this crazy dirty Facebook group, the fact that you're girlfriend isn't public about her relationship with you, even though she's public with dirty pictures and public about being poly, she's keeping you hidden away. There's just a lot going on here. And I think that you have latched onto this Facebook group that she created and still shares with her soon to be ex-husband, not quite yet ex-husband, as symbolic somehow of her commitment to you or her seriousness about you and whether you two are now, the couple, you say that you two became monogamous. You also say that you two are on a break now and she is back to posting in this Facebook group with her husband or keeps returning to it or with soon to be ex-husband. I think you need to stay on the break from your girlfriend until after her divorce is finalized. And then you should only resume things with your girlfriend if she can be public about her relationship with you. If you can officially be her acknowledged monogamous boyfriend. And I think if you get to that point where you can publicly be her boyfriend, that this Facebook group will be less galling to you because what it symbolizes, at least right now, is that publicly she is still in this kind of partnership with her soon-to-be ex-husband and that they still share this and he is the one who's publicly acknowledged, even if it's just in the small confines of this dirty little Facebook group, as her partner and partner in crime, partner in encouraging people to post these dirty pictures and share these dirty pictures in this space. And so right now the Facebook group kind of symbolizes to you and your disposability, your invisibility. And so as she is very publicly visible, still interacting with her ex-husband in this Facebook group, and you are the hidden, you're the secret, you're the dirty little secret that she hasn't acknowledged publicly, that upsets you. The Facebook group upsets you more than it likely would if you were publicly her boyfriend and she was still doing this crazy little Facebook group with her ex-husband and some of their mutual friends. And while ordering her not to post 
pictures in this Facebook group would certainly be controlling. And while you guys are officially broken up, not something you can reasonably ask her to do, what you're really asking for is to be her priority. And right now you don't feel like her priority in the Facebook group symbolizes that. It, it, it salts a wound. And it's the wound that's the problem, the lack of any public acknowledgement of your existence. If you salt what isn't a wound, you don't even feel it. You probably wouldn't even feel it if this Facebook group existed and it was something that your girlfriend did, considering that you're you know, poly and open or previously were poly and open. If your girlfriend did this and had this little thing on the side with some friends, including maybe her ex-boyfriend or ex-husband, it wouldn't bother you so much. But right now it does. Circumstances need to change perhaps for it to bother you less. The divorce needs to be finalized. You two need to be public about your relationship. That's going to take some time. And I don't think you should end this break and pick things back up with her until after the divorce is finalized and you two can go public. Hey, Dan, what's going on? I am a 35-year-old dude living in the Pacific Northwest. And today is the fourth anniversary of my husband's death. We were together for 11 years, and I miss him more than words can describe. He was kind and funny and fucking hung. Miss you, dude. Uh, anyway, I got kind of a two-part question here. Um, I've heard you talk about uh, gay divorce, um, but I haven't really heard anything about gay widowhood, and I definitely feel kind of lost in the woods here, especially because, you know, he wasn't just my my husband and lover, but you know, he's a couple of years older than me and kind of had that uh, daddy thing going. So uh, I miss him and don't really know what to do with myself. Uh, the second part is uh, I'm kind of wondering how I can move forward and uh, allow myself to, to love and be loved again. Um, I feel like it's about time, but it's uh, hard to relate to my peers sometimes and, you know, hard to open up. So I, I just wanted to connect with you personally rather than just pop off. And I'm afraid that sure. everything I have to say is just the most obvious thing to say. I hope you're in a grief support group. I hope you have peers who are going through what you're going through now. I would encourage you to find and join a peer support group, even if everyone is in it is straight. Yeah, uh, that's one thing I haven't done. I'm not entirely sure why, but uh, I don't know. Like time seems to have gone by. It seems, you know, I don't want to be the guy that four years out is still struggling, you know? Mm -hmm. But you are the guy four years out who's still struggling. And what other choice do you have but to be the guy that you are? Can you? Yeah, for sure. Will you just tell me a little bit about your husband? Yeah, he was amazing. He was a snowboard photographer. He came out late. Uh He introduced me to a world that was uh, pretty exciting and, and a lot of fun. So and, uh, he passed away four years ago. How, how how long were you lucky enough to be married to him? Uh, eleven years. We were together. Wow. He, he got me when I was he got me when I was about twenty. And how old was he when you met? Gosh, he was probably thirty-seven when we met. Wow. So an age difference there. A little bit. <laughs> It's how, you know, you go into a relationship with a 15, 16, 17, 20 year age difference. You anticipate, if all things go well, that your partner will predecease you, that there will be a time in your life when you have to face the, the world, face the day without him. It just sounds like it came much sooner than you expected or would have hoped. 
it was way way sooner than we expected. Yeah. I'm so sorry about that. I do have something to say that's going to seem crass. You know, culturally, there is this not fetish for, but sort of appreciation of or uh, a willingness to be open to dating people who are widows or widowers because they're perceived as having succeeded at a marriage. I I, 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 I expected to find that, but I haven't I haven't found that to be true. Well, it's probably scared some people off, right? Sure, for sure, for sure. The 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 the, 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 prof- the profoundness of your grief, but also the it sounds like you're still in the throes of it. Have Have you seen a counselor? Have you seen a therapist? Even if you haven't joined yeah, a I'm, support group, I'm in one on one therapy. Yeah, and you've been consistent. You've been going. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Well. It, it, if you have had the experience where you've opened up to people about this and it just seems too big, uh, you know, choose to step in or too big, you know, the feelings are too big or too scary for that person and they've withdrawn, that's the wrong person or the wrong series of people. And the more people that you open up to, the, the sooner you'll get to the person who isn't intimidated by that but actually appreciates it for what it – says about you and, that, and that's what i mean not by the, the, the fetish or appreciation for that what it says about a person that you know sometimes people's you know husbands or wives drop dead when you know they were thinking about divorcing them or on their way to divorce court so it's not actually proof that somebody made it to that particular finish line or the relationship was wonderful but it's perceived to be that by many and perceived to be a kind of affirmation a, a kind of relationship vetting by many not by all and, you know, if you're looking to date guys your own age or younger, or, or I, I can see how that would be intimidating. The, the profundity of your loss and the depth of your feeling for your late husband, like some people are going to react like, how could I compete with that? But the right person who may also have faced similar grief is going to react to it by seeing in you this capacity to love somebody that transcendently and not feel in competition for it, but, you know, to feel like that is a son that they also could be warmed by. And, and it's, you know, this is just the bullshit advice that we were always, you know, people in my position, my goofy gig are always forced to give that you just have to keep getting out there. You have to keep putting yourself out there, however painful it might be. And you will, eventually not hit a jackpot, but you'll, something will line up for you. Right. I hope you so. just have to, but you, but you have to put yourself out there for that to happen. And, and it's hard enough to put yourself out there to, to let that happen. If the, you know, the biggest grief in your life is just that you haven't had a relationship or you've been dumped a few times in a row by people that you were in love with. And, and, and you know, the grief in your life is so much more, it's so much bigger. But hopefully the, the, the enormity of that grief is going to put what for many people seems enormous for you into perspective. If you make yourself vulnerable and somebody walks away, compared to what you've suffered, that's nothing. I've been through worse. Exactly. You know, and the other thing that we tell people, and I think this applies even to you in your circumstance, people who are single and would like to date and would like to get out there, is that you know, some people are single 
all their lives. Some people are single for the rest of their lives. Some people are partnered now and will be single again uh, in time because of the uh, divorce, because of, you know, their partners may predecease them. And so you have to build a life for yourself that is full of joy and, and, and meaning whether you're single or not. And it's often in the process of building that life full of joy and meaning that you meet somebody who takes joy from the same things you do and finds meaning in the same things you do or enough of the same things you do that you can see yourselves together and it brings you together. So not just going out on the partner hunt, but going out on the self-actualization hunt, going out on the joy and meaning hunt on your own without it being necessarily focused on partner or, or, or finding companionship or sex, but focused on yourself and then reserving some time to get out there and find some sex and, and, and intimacy as well, that you can move on both those fronts at the same time. But it's often when you're heading in the direction of joy and meaning that you find the sex and intimacy that you were having a harder time finding when you were just focused on sex and intimacy. But my, my heart goes out to you. My heart breaks for you. Thank you. Um, I, I hate to, to bring something as cliche as the Queen of England up at a moment like this. <laughs> uh, but, you know, and it's not comparable. Uh, they've said to, you know, lose a parent is to lose your past, to lose a partner, is to lose a big chunk of your present. Uh, and to lose a child is to lose your future. And these are different kinds and, and, and scales of grief. But, you know, when my mother died, I was a wreck. Uh, and I was in uh, the Episcopal Cathedral in New York and chiseled on a wall is grief is the price we pay for love. Queen Elizabeth II, like she said it after 9-11 and they chiseled it on the column in the Episcopal Cathedral in New York. And I saw that and it just struck me that my grief wasn't a waste, that my grief was a monument. And so I'd encourage you to sit with and sit in your grief and at some point to let yourself or at some points, because I think grief is something you live with forever, but at some points to allow yourself to be comforted by it, not paralyzed by it. And that can mean just to feel the fuck out of it for a while and to let yourself be incredibly sad. And sometimes really leaning into your feelings in that way, it doesn't purge them because they're still there, but it allows you to depart from them to, to walk with them. I'm, I'm, I'm running out of words here because of the, the, the enormity of this, but do you know what I mean? You know, sometimes sure. when you're st yeah. still in the process of grieving. You feel like you're betraying yourself when you succumb to the grief. But if you regard the grief as a tribute, as a monument, as a statement about your love and how important it was to you that you can allow yourself to be overwhelmed by that grief in a contained way without then being paralyzed by it or feeling like you have to stay in it all the time. I've definitely uh, spent some time turning towards my grief and I think I'm just having more of a, a difficult transition with turning back towards joy. You know, it's like uh, the mechanism that used to let me feel really good uh, about my life just isn't quite there anymore. And, uh, I, I do, I do like the idea of just going out to have fun, uh, have a certain appeal. And I imagine it's going to be a, ma a matter of practice probably. 
I would encourage you to meet people and you don't have to lead with this, that this is something you can reveal to someone in time. You created the relationship you had with your husband. It didn't happen to you. And you have the power to create a new relationship that brings you a new kind of joy. But your grief for your husband is always going to be a part of you and it's going to have to be a part. There's going to have to be room for that grief in your new relationship. I imagine that person that, that I find, if I find them, will be pretty cool. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. But to find that pretty cool person, you're probably going to have to discard some fools. <laughs> and quickly, we now. I ain't got time for that. <laughs> <laughs> That's part of it's part of dating, and you know what you get out of that uh, is you get good stories that you can share with the friends, maybe from your grief support group that I think you should join if you can find one. Awesome. All right. Well, well, good luck to you, and 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 my heart goes out to you. And four years is not too long to to grieve. Uh, you know, a lifetime, I don't think, is too long to grieve. But four years is not too long, I think, to be stuck in grief for an 11-plus-year relationship, 11-plus-year marriage. You haven't failed yourself. You're still just emerging. I appreciate it, Dan. Thank you. Sure thing. Good luck, man. Thanks. Hey, Dan. My fiance and I are getting married in five months. We're super excited to plan our wedding. And we're doing this kind of on our own because our families are not so involved in it. So about two months ago, my mom sent a group text to my sister and I announcing that her and her boyfriend are going to get married and they're going to get married four months before ours. So next month. And she wants to get married because, quote unquote, she's never had a big wedding. She's never had a real wedding, which is odd because she was married to my dad for about 40 years. My dad passed away roughly two years ago and one month later, she decided to fly to Australia to meet this guy she'd been chatting with on the Scrabble game, Scrabble online game, Words with Friends. Fine, that's all okay. But now that she's full on planning her wedding, she has decided that she would like to have me help plan it. I don't know if that's something cute she thinks is happening. We can be buddies together planning our weddings, but. My fiance and I are not comfortable with her getting married. We don't really want to be involved in it. This isn't really a wedding about love, as far as we can tell. It's mostly about her getting more attention. My mom's a narcissist and has been for a long time. And over the years, she's been getting a lot worse. So I guess I'm just calling because I'm not really sure how to deal with her. My fiance and I are both a little hurt, angry, and disgusted. We don't want to help her with her wedding. We don't really want to hear about it because I'm getting slews of texts every day asking more questions about what she should do. And this small wedding is supposed to be in her house next month. It's getting more elaborate, getting bigger. And it's a little bit embarrassing. So how do you handle narcissism in a family member? How do we protect ourselves? And how do we make sure... We're not getting trumped by her wanting all the attention when this is our first wedding and we're really excited. So basically your complaint boils down to my mother is an attention seeking narcissist who's drawing attention away from me. It's perfectly understandable that you're annoyed. Your wedding's five months out. Your mother suddenly announces she's having a wedding. She tries to draw you in to the planning for that wedding. 
that's I can understand why that's annoying. You have a lot on your plate. You're busy planning your own wedding. You don't have the bandwidth to help your mother plan her sudden, perhaps ill-advised marriage to a near stranger. And you don't have to be involved. How do you handle a narcissist in the family? Well, you can't control them. You can't order your mother not to get married. You can't dictate to her. But you can have boundaries and make them clear. It's fine you're getting married. I can't help you plan it. Sorry. And when someone announces a wedding four weeks out, it's not always possible for everyone that they invite to that wedding to show up on command in four short weeks. So if you determine that you can't go logistically, you're not obligated to go. You can send a fucking toaster. You can send a broken toaster if you're mad. Take a hammer to it. All that said, and I'm on your side, really I am, all that said, we aren't in control of when other people decide to marry. People don't have to wait till after our weddings to have their own weddings. If we're having a wedding that we're planning months and months in advance and somebody else feels a need to get married in Vegas that weekend, that is their legal moral right to have that quickie wedding. They can't draft people into helping them plan that wedding or showing up for that wedding. So you don't have to help your mother out. don't have to help her plan. You can just tell her that you're busy with your own plans. But you can't allow yourself or you shouldn't allow yourself or it's a waste of time and emotional energy to allow yourself to be consumed by anger about what your mother's doing. You can't control your mother. If she's an attention-sinking, annoying narcissist, everybody knows it. Other family members know it. Everybody's rolling their eyes together in unison and that should be comfort enough for you. Send that toaster, focus on your own wedding, focus on your own plans, pay her no attention. Hi, Dan. I am a 21-year-old female living on the West Coast, but I'm currently home for the holidays on the East Coast visiting my family. Um, I went to a Christmas party that was hosted by my best friend and her boyfriend, and her boyfriend has this best friend who uh, she's been wanting me to like hook up with him and I've made it very clear like I'm not comfortable with that I'm just not the type of person that can like hook up with someone unless I'm in a relationship with them or I see a future with them so at this party they were trying to get me to do stuff with him and I like would verbally be like no like it's not going to happen they tried to get us to kiss under the mistletoe and I would like verbally like no, like it's, it's not going there. Like I wasn't giving him any kind of signs that I was into him. So then I was talking to one of my friends and this guy and my best friend were standing behind me. And all of a sudden the guy reaches under my skirt and touches my pussy. And I immediately just grabs his hand away. I'm just like, don't fucking do that. And I continued talking to this guy. I was like, I'm just going to like let it go. And then he did it again. And at the same thing, I like pulled his hand away. And then like, I was like, okay, you know what? I'm going to walk away. And he followed me and he did it again. And this time, since I wasn't in the middle of a conversation, I was like, yo, like, I'm not ready for that. And I don't really remember what he said back, but he was just like, something like ready for what like he was insinuating like we're not doing anything he was insinuating like we're not having sex and I'm sort of having like cognitive dissonance because I'm always like oh if a guy ever touches me like I'm going to say something like it will be known that he's not to touch me like that and then it happened and I 
didn't say anything. Like I let him know, but I didn't let him know that like he totally like violated my boundaries. And I just, I feel like I should have done more. And my friend even texted me like joking about it, laughing about it. And I was uncomfortable and I kind of just like went along with it. Like I was just like, oh, LOL. Like, yeah, that was crazy. Like that he did that. But I didn't really say that it made me uncomfortable. This was about two weeks ago. So I guess my question is like, is it too late for me to say something? Like, how do I bring this up to let them know? Like, it clearly was not okay. And then if this ever happens in the future, is like, is removing someone's hand, like, not enough? Do I need to be like, don't fucking touch me? Like, I thought I was kind of being respectful by like, not blowing up on him, but like, definitely being like, yo, like, don't do this. Like, I thought that removing his hand would be enough, but clearly it wasn't. So I'm feeling just super violated and like, the situation just doesn't sit right with me. So I was just wondering your advice on this. He totally violated your boundaries. He sexually assaulted you repeatedly in public in front of people who laughed it off, who cheered him on. You need to blow up at him. You need to blow up at the friend or friends that were pressuring you to date this person, meet up with this person. He is a terrible piece of shit, sexual predator. You need to take the hurt you're feeling right now, how violated you're feeling right now, and you need to, as they say, sit with it and promise yourself, harness this energy so that if this ever happens to you again in the future, you will not in that moment defer or de-escalate or try to protect the ego of the man who's sexually assaulting you and you will blow up. You will pull his hand off your vagina. You will pull his hand out from under your skirt and you will scream and yell at him about what the fuck does he think he's doing? Why is his hand on your vagina? Where the fuck does he think he's coming from? And you will take all of the rage you're feeling right now and how violated you felt by this person and in this situation where it's not you that failed yourself. It's the culture that set you up for failure because the culture socializes women to de-escalate in some cases for completely rational reasons because men can be violent and you're in a situation where violence may not even be a concern. You're at a crowded party. You have allegedly friends there who could look out for you in that moment and still there's some part of your reptile brain that's a, that fears it escalating to the point of violence and so instead of blowing up, you de-escalate. And that's what you did. You de-escalated. You just need to promise yourself if you're ever in this situation again and it is safe to blow up, you will blow up, that you will rage, that you will grab that person's hand and you will get in their face and you will scream. You will ask other people that they saw what he did and you will call the fucking police. Make yourself that promise. Everything you're feeling right now, how violated you're feeling right now, there's not much that you can do about the circumstance at this party now except blow up at him, hold him as accountable as you possibly can, blow up at your friends who laughed this off, make sure that they understand that it's not fucking funny, end those friendships if they can't understand it, and then make sure that these feelings, this rage, how violated you feel right now, that those feelings don't go to waste. Instead, they arm you, prepare you for being more confrontational if you should ever find yourself in this situation again. And as a woman in our culture, you will probably find yourself in this situation again. Hi, Dan. I'm wondering if it's ever appropriate or even socially acceptable to tell someone that they look nothing like their Tinder pics and that it's misleading, or is it just better to politely decline a second date 
for other reasons, like just not feeling it. This is one of those circumstances where you aren't obligated to tell some stranger why it is that you're not going to see them again. People know that they should put accurate, recent, representative photos of themselves on dating sites. If he keeps, you know, having these interactions with people, getting to first date, and then there's no second date or the first date is quickly aborted in the first five minutes, he's going to have to piece it together. He should be able to piece it together over time. Anyone who puts up inaccurate, non-recent, non-representative photos of themselves, that that's likely what's going on here. And he can ask his friends to help him game out the problem. Like, why does he keep getting you know interest and in a first date that lasts five minutes and no more? And then it's on his friends to tell him, well, look, your pictures don't look anything like you do. That's the problem. You don't have to tell him that. It might be helpful if you did, but then, you know, if you're going to be the truth teller and you're not the friend or you're not the person working it out for themselves, they may blow up. They may get angry. And you don't have to risk that if you don't want to risk that. It would ultimately be to his benefit if you told him the truth. It's not your responsibility, however, to tell him this truth. Hi, Dan. I'm a 25-year-old pansexual trans guy living in the Midwest. I recently discovered that I have a hypno kink but it doesn't seem to be something that is common to have. I want to explore this kink more, and I'm having trouble figuring out how to do so when it isn't a typical kink to have. I'm nervous that I'll weird people out. What do you usually suggest to those who have uncommon kinks in regards to exploring and experiencing their kinks in healthy manners? Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Michal David has been active in the hypno-kink scene since 2012. She teaches and writes about erotic hypnosis. Hey, Michal, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, I, I found an essay that you wrote for the website Narratively called What It's Like to Have a Hypnosis Fetish. And I had a question for you before we get to the caller's questions. This isn't something that snuck up on you at age 25. This is something uh, that I think your experience of the dawning awareness of your kink as a child is really common to a lot of kinksters out there. It's almost like that an awareness of their kink before they had an awareness of their sexual orientation pre-puberty. Certainly, I... You know, the most I can give by any sort of numbers is an unofficial Twitter poll I once did, which is obviously nothing to go by. Um, but certainly uh, early childhood, adolescence at the latest, a lot of people who consider themselves fetishists uh, figure it out. And, and for you, it was seeing the Jungle Book. Is that right? Remembering that correctly? Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm not unique in that sense. It's uh, a little embarrassing. But I mean, as far as I'm aware, because my earliest memory of it happening, I don't actually think was the first memory uh, was the first time that happened. But mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure it was the Jungle Book and Ka, the hypnotizing singing snake voiced by the guy who voiced Winnie the Pooh. So there you go. <laughs> and and that scene and that character and that, that, that moment fascinated you as a child. And then that carried over into puberty and adolescence and into a full-blown and pretty wonderful, if it's brought a lot of connection and joy into your life, kink. Absolutely. Uh, so, so tell me about the hypno-kink scene. And I, I think that's probably where the caller needs to start. Uh, you know, he thinks, I, I have this really uncommon kink and I'm alone out there and I'm going to weird people out, but he's not alone out there. Absolutely not. Uh, the hypnosis scene uh, as any sort of real-life uh, convening is only about 10, 11 years old. It's grown very fast in that time. There's about half a dozen annual conventions. I think the caller mentioned being from the Midwest. There's one in the Chicago area that happens during the summer, for example. 
Um, many cities across the U.S., including the Midwest, do regular meetups. It might be, you know, a munch, just a, a chatty get-together or classes or parties. There's a very, very robust online scene spread across several social media platforms. So wherever you're comfortable jumping in, there's probably a place for you. So this is something that the caller, if, if he's not already partnered, can can get out there and join the active hypno kink scene, meet other people where this is a baseline, where you don't have to feel weird about being into this because everyone you're meeting at this convention or this event or this meetup shares this with you. Absolutely. Now, what if he already has a partner or already has partners and he's coming into this sort of awareness of, of hypno fetishism uh, turning him on? How do you talk about this with someone who's a hypno muggle? <laughs> well, it's certainly not easy. Um, it's a situation I've been in. Um, I came out of it okay. And I know a lot of people who came out the other end the better for it. Uh, one of the amazing things about hypnokink is even though it doesn't necessarily sound like that, it's actually very accessible as a fetish. It has a very broad application and there's a diverse uh, ways of, there's diverse ways you can enjoy it. So when you're talking to someone who might not know about it, the first thing you can do is express where you're coming from, but you can also initiate a conversation with them. A lot of people have a lot of cultural tropes that they carry around about what hypnosis is or isn't. Uh, so you can educate yourself on where fantasy differs from reality um, and talk about, you know, what is it that you like? Is it the sense of relaxation? Is it power exchange? Is it mental or psychological bondage? Um, if you have an open line of communication with your partner already, you're really building on conversations that I hope you've already been having. And, you know, it seems to me that this would be an easy thing to, you know, even if a person reacted negatively at first, as many people do when their partners roll out an unexpected or uncommon kink, sometimes that mm -hmm. initial reaction is negative. It doesn't mean they're never going to come around or the reaction is always going to be negative. So please don't freak out and run if your partner's first reaction is, you know, sex negative or kink negative, as so many of our initial reactions are. But it does seem so obviously to be a kind of bondage play or power exchange play. It's just you don't need a ton of gear. You just need two willing brains. Exactly. I mean, it doesn't have to have some sort of power exchange. It can be power neutral. Uh, fetishists don't tend to get it from that perspective. Uh, the fetishists often are coming from a sense of it's mind control. It's the ultimate power exchange. It's the ultimate bondage is, is I know I am not alone in feeling that way. If you already are talking about bondage, talking about kink, talking about power exchange, this can fit very easily into that conversation. And you certainly can use it with gear. You can combine it with rope or impact or role play or whatever kinks you are already doing, or you can use it on its own. It's really up to the imagination and the interest of the parties involved. You said earlier that it helps have an understanding of what hypnosis is and what hypnosis isn't. I don't really understand what hypnosis is and what it isn't. Can you explain that for me? Sure. Well, yes and no. Uh, the definitions of hypnosis often end up using the word in the definition. It is, and there are certainly people, including psychologists, who literally do not believe that it exists up till this point, despite a lot of evidence to the contrary. 
Um, so the most that I will say is sort of a broadly accepted definition. It is an altered state in which a person becomes generally more focused and more suggestible. Uh, that said, I would say that in Hypnoking, we play pretty broadly with psychological altered states and sort of shove it under that umbrella. Um, it has a lot of similarities to subspace for people who are familiar with that. That is some of the time. The tricky thing is it's also a very subjective experience. It varies very differently from person to person on how they experience it. And that can cause for a lot of complicated communication issues. That said, um, it's not mind control. No one, there is no situation where you've just met someone, you put, her, put them under hypnosis, and whatever it is you tell them to do, they have no choice but to do it. That so, is a hot fantasy for myself <laughs> and many others, but that's not how it works practically. It's a hot fantasy. It's what literally you're role-playing doing hypnosis play. Well, role-play, yes and no. Hypnosis can be a real tool for consensual mind control. There are certainly kinky relationships in which a great deal of actual power is exchanged and hypnosis is can be really great for that. Um, it does lower inhibitions. It does unleash creative capabilities. It does make people feel generally more capable. And if what you're interested in being more capable of doing is submitting to another person, it's excellent for that. So more guided meditation. I guess I'm a hypno-skeptic. Like, I kind of don't believe that anybody could stumble into, did you see the film Get Out? Sort of a get-out situation. I did. Put under hypnosis without even being aware that you're being hypnotized and then being helpless while you're under hypnosis and these evil white people are harvesting your brain. I don't think that's a thing that <laughs> can happen to a person. No, but... Certainly, there's other altered states that we go into that can legitimately inhibit our agency and our ability to consent. You know, sometimes when people get drunk, they do things that even though they chose to do it, obviously they were not in a state of mind where they were really capable of giving their full consent. That said, lots of people mix alcohol and sex and have a great time. Um, so, I mean, it's not a perfect metaphor, but hypnosis sort of broadly falls into that category where different people have sort of different responses to it. And if as a player and a hypnotic bottom, you sort of figure out where along that spectrum you fall, you can engage with it more safely. Um, but no, the, the types of things you see in cartoons is not how it works, but it also gives people a fetish and makes them want it to work that way. <laughs> so, you know, in a way, uh, you know, in a typical or, or more commonly understood BDSM scene with the master slave role play the dom can very effectively guide the sub into a kind of subspace where you know people who get into subspace will talk about how they sort of like just felt more and more submissive almost in a trance-like state around their submission uh and it sounds like this is something similar where there's a you know the hypno dom is sort of guiding the hypno sub but it really is taking the hypno sub somewhere you know all other you know, more commonly understood BDSM sub, somewhere they kind of already want to go. So it's this willingness on the part of the hypno sub to get there that helps the hypno dom take them there. Yeah, in a, in a good scene, that's really hot and exciting and that's what's happening and it can be very real. All right, l let's circle back to the, the, the caller's concern. You say that you mm -hmm. had relationships with people, you know, people you didn't meet through the, the hypno kink scene, uh, people that you met through, you know, normal life or normal dating apps or however, uh, and you had to roll mm -hmm. your kink out for them. 
did you ever have any success with that? How did that go? Um, I'm married to someone who had never heard of hypnosis as a kink when we met, so I'd say it went okay. Um, <laughs> and any tips for the caller then on how to talk about this? Just be honest. I mean, I know, you know, if someone really likes you and is really interested in the things you're interested in, it will inspire them. I mean, my husband, would he have any interest in hypno kink if I did not? No way. But he saw how much passion and joy it brought me and that inspired him. And did he think it was weird? Yes, he thought it was weird. He still thinks it's weird, (laughs) but he also does it because he's learned to really appreciate how I respond to it and the energy that a kinkster or a fetishist brings to that thing is, you know, in my opinion, really inspiring. Um, And just be prepared to like I said, you should know what it is you're talking about and the difference between fantasy and reality because you will get questions, some of them frustrating, some of them maybe kind of dumb. But if you're patient and you're willing to work with someone, you just you don't want to go in defensive. It's not you're not there to defend the way you feel about the thing that you like. You're there to share it and try to encourage someone to share it with you. And it's fine to feel a little awkward while you do it. And it's fine. Yeah. For, it's not fine, but it's, you know, understand that your partner will sometimes have an initial negative reaction and that's not necessarily them judging or shaming you. That's just the kink negativity and, and sex negativity in the culture falling out of their mouths where they can think about it, but roll yep. it out like it's Christmas morning and this is a gift, not it's a cancer diagnosis and it's leukemia. Don't roll it out like it's bad news. It's potentially something really fun that you guys can enjoy together. It's hilarious that, that, that you're married to someone that, you know, thought it was weird at first and you had to roll this out who's now, you know, down and active in the hypno kink scene as you are. I've always said that you go to big kink fetish yeah. events, whatever well, so it is. I will say, I will say he's not active the way I am. I am also polyamorous and I have an owner who is my <laughs> hypnotist and dominant. So I'm saying I don't know uh, the caller's situation in regards to that. But I'm, you know, as you talk about, you get different partners to fulfill different needs. And I like having a partner who relates to this the same way I do. And I like sharing it with my non-fetishist partner in the ways that works for us. And it's very different in both situations and, and wonderful in both. So that's, you know, another potential option that's very exciting. Well, forgive me for making that assumption there that erased poly people, yeah. my bad. Uh, but I just wanted to say to the caller, like you go to big kink events and in my experience, and I've been to plenty with my husband, you meet two kinds of people, people who were kinky, kind of like you, Michal, uh, you know, as basically children, you know, they, they had this obsession mm-hmm. that then transmorgified into a kink in, in, in adolescence and puberty. You meet people who are always kinky and you meet the people who fell in love with those people and are now able and willing to go there and have fun there, but they weren't always kinky. They fell in love with the kinkster. And uh, yeah. give them a chance, caller, and someone will fall in love with you and your kink. Mikhail, David, thank you so much for jumping on the phone. Before we let you go, you are the editor of the recently released The Brainwashing Book. Can you tell us quickly about that? Yes, it's by a friend, metamore, and play partner. So, you know, how's that for polyamory? Um, named Sleeping Girl. It's available on Amazon. And it's a book that uses uh, behaviorism, you know, think Pavlov, and also hypnosis as a sort of guide to how do you consensually condition brainwash your partner so there hasn't really been anything like that and i'm very excited to be a part of it and i hope that everybody uh gets a chance to check it out michael david thank you so much for jumping on the phone today i really appreciate it thank you so much dan
Hey, Dan and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. This is a 30-something guy from the Pacific Northwest, and I got a question about butt sex. My wife and I have recently gotten into anal uh, after following advice from your podcast and other resources about taking it slow, using lots of lube, avoiding discomfort, all of that. Uh, Things have been going great. So my question is, is there a safe, smooth way to transition from anal penetration to vaginal penetration? We understand the risks uh, associated with possible contamination there, and we want to avoid that. But my wife does a very good job of cleaning uh, cleaning herself out, and any kind of uh, residue, unwanted residue, has never really been a problem. Uh, so that's what I want to know. Can it be done s- safely, quickly, smoothly, without ruining the moment? The residue doesn't have to be visible to the naked eye for there to be contamination, for that to cause a real problem for your wife's vagina. So no, no, even if she does a really good job of cleaning herself out before you two do anal, no, 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 you may not go from anal to vaginal back and back and back and back again. You put a condom on for anal if you guys, I assume you're fluid bonded, you're not using condoms. You put a condom on for anal if you're going to want to go from anal to vaginal and you can pull the condom off. Or you put a female condom in her butt and then you can go from fucking that female condom in her butt to fucking her vag bare with your dick and then back again. You can also go from vaginal to anal without any risk, but you can't go from anal to vaginal. The potential for contamination, for infection, for very unpleasant infection is just too great. So although it may ruin the moment to deploy the condom, to take the condom off when you're going from anal to vaginal or to make sure you're entering the condom if you're going from anal to vaginal to anal to vaginal, entering the female condom when you go to the back door, when you go to the butt, that's what you're going to have to do to protect your wife's vaginal health. Hi, Dan. I'm wondering if the word herpes needs to be retired and a new name chosen that doesn't carry the weight of that word. There are certainly plenty of examples out there of brands that stayed the same, but changed their name. Uh, And I don't mean that cynically. I mean that more as a clean slate, something that represents that herpes was something that, while it can be serious, is not nearly as devastating as the word herpes has implied for years. We could change the name. This Your call is actually making me think of this candy, this diet candy, appetite suppressant candy that had been on the market for decades when the HIV AIDS crisis broke out and the candy's name was AIDS. And the candy company argued publicly that the disease should have to change its name because the candy was named AIDS long before the disease came along. AIDS candies went out of business. They didn't stick around long enough to change the name. I wish herpes would go out of business. I wish that was possible. And maybe we should change the name because the stigma is so great. People went from saying that they were infected with HIV to describing themselves as POS, P-O-Z. And that did help, you know, depathologize living with HIV and, and someone being infected. You know, the word infected was so fraught. I'm HIV infected. People describe themselves as POS and adopting that New language really helped destigmatize living with HIV, destigmatize people living with HIV. Maybe we could pull the same move on herpes. Maybe we could rename it. Maybe we could name it Gladys. That was Nancy's suggestion. I kind of like it. Maybe we should call it Gladys. No one names their kids Gladys anymore. So that's a perfectly good and harmless seeming name that's just laying around. 
not being used for anything. So if anyone is so motivated, anybody listening to the show has a question about herpes, when you call it in, maybe opt for Gladys instead. Hi, Dan. I'm calling on behalf of me and my partner. We're a 40-something couple from a Western state. Uh, We are very introverted, but would like to meet a third for our relationship. But we are not doing very well just because we are just not good at the dating thing. I guess you could say that neither of us has very much game. Um, we don't like dating sites very much. Uh, we just aren't great at them. Um, you know, we're trying to get out to more events and to meetups and things like that, but we just are not great at meeting new people. So what do you suggest? We don't want to come across as predatory unicorn hunters or anything like that. Um, you know, but I think that it might also be holding us back for meeting new people. So what do you suggest for the introverted poly couple who wants to meet their unicorn? There are dating apps for people, for couples who are seeking thirds. And if you don't have game in person of going to meetups or going out to clubs or joining a poly organization that has social events, isn't where you shine, well, then do what a lot of introverted people do and get online and put up some dating apps. And it's a good impulse not to want to come across as a predatory unicorn hunter, but you guys are hunting for a unicorn. It is okay to put out there what it is that you're looking for. And unlike hunting for venison, like shooting deers, there are actually unicorns out there who want to be found, who are seeking couples like you and your husband. There are single bi women out there who are open to dating couples. There are also married bi women out there who are seeking couples that they can have a more casual arrangement with. Maybe you can be the unicorn for them and she can be the unicorn for you guys. There are lots of possibilities. But if you don't do well face-to-face in person, if you have social anxiety, if you're introverted, use the internet. Get on the apps. And don't worry about being perceived to be predatory when you are out there searching. When you're hunting, you're hunting. Just be respectful about the hunting that you're doing. Let people know what it is you want, what it is you're seeking. Don't lie. You know, the problem people have with anybody, single people, coupled people, partnered people, people seeking to be a third, people looking for a third, the problem people have is when they're lied to. That's when they feel manipulated. That's when they feel preyed upon in a weird and uncomfortable way when they're lied to. Just be direct and honest about what it is you want. And even though you're on the hunt, you're a lot less likely to be perceived as predatory, if you're being honest and direct. All right, before we get to your response calls, let's read some of your tweets. Sweet Tea tweets, sometimes the Savage Lovecast call hits a little close to home, but in today's episode, two calls in a row touched on problems I've been having, and I'm very thankful to Fake Dan Savage for the validating advice he gives that I can apply to my life, too. Oh, that's really sweet. Thank you, Sweet Tea, for that very sweet tweet. Amanda Oakery tweets, Hey, Savage Lovecast, I found porn on my 8.5-year-old and 10-year-old's phones and iPads. Fuck, isn't that young? Thanks for the advice on what to say, Dan. I told them it's not how women want to be treated, that a lot of porn is made for angry, lonely men, and it's not how you should learn about sex. Well done, Mom. I'm happy I could help you out, but you did the heavy lifting. And finally, Hazenberg tweets, I was feeling pretty crushingly depressed this morning, but Coffee, the Savage Lovecast, and the McElroy brothers' shenanigans over at My Brother, My Brother, and Me are helping a lot. 
Happy to help. And all of us here at the Savage Lovecast are big fans of my brother, my brother and me, the McElroy brothers. Terrific and long-running podcast. All right. If you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to use the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now some of your response calls. In response to the ambient wanker in episode 690, I really liked Dan's advice. I thought that was very thoughtful, considerate, and I really appreciated it. I think it's also okay not to tell if you're in the right situation to do that. I love masturbating next to my husband in bed while he sleeps. In fact, part of the enjoyment, I think, is the sort of fear of getting caught. And he is 100% not the person who would lay there and suffer silently so that I could have my wank. So I don't have any qualms about waking him up or or inconveniencing him. So I think if you're in the right situation uh, with the right partner, there's absolutely no ethical dilemma about doing that without telling your partner. Hi, this is a comment about the caller who had a negative sexual experience while being blacked out. I think Dan had two blind spots with this call that I just want to draw attention to. This person may be struggling with alcoholism or addiction. In that case, they're not going to be capable of stopping or slowing down or moderating. Just saying that because part of what made me quit drinking was having some of these blackout experiences and realizing that I was not in control. Second thing, she really needs to tell her boyfriend just for the sake of his sexual health, the person she had the encounter with, he couldn't remember if he came or where he came. And I really doubt condoms were a big part of this experience. So if they did engage in unsafe sex, it's really her obligation to let her boyfriend know so he can keep himself safe from contracting anything and that she can wait and get an STD or an STI test before they have unprotected sex again. Hello, I'm calling in response to the trans woman in episode 690 that uh, was having trouble with fearing that her butt wasn't clean for sex. And Dan, I can't believe you didn't advise this. Get up a day. Get up a day. Spray your butt. Spray it multiple times. Spray it as many times as you want. Doesn't take very long. Flush it out. Clean it up. Wipe it dry. Good to go. Less than a couple minutes. Taking an hour or two to prepare your butt for anal is just ridiculous. Get a bidet. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz, 206-302-2064. Even better than calling our hotline, use your phone, use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. Hump, my little porn film festival, is touring the country right now. Go to humpfilmfest.com to find out when Hump is coming to a city near you. And if you like the Lovecast, if you particularly like me popping off at the beginning of the Lovecast, you will love Blabbermouth, where a whole bunch of stranger staffers pop off about the week's news, hosted by Eli Sanders, the Wood Surprise winning journalist. That's Blabbermouth, comes out on all your podcasting platforms every Wednesday. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy. We'll be back at you next week with an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.